I understand this is kind of a test week. You kind of hit that cycle where it seems like most of your classes have a test in the same week. We're about that time, three or four weeks into the semester where that hits. I promise the teachers don't get together and coordinate that. It's just, you know, God's providence and um, uh, he's, he's stretching you. Okay, that's not intentional. It's just a fortunate coincidence. Uh, and, but we are going to talk a little bit about uh, a test uh, this morning uh, in the chapel message. But, you know, along that line, I thought it, would, it might, you know, connect the dots a little bit to relate to you a story about some students who were supposed to be studying for a test and didn't. They were out, you know, goofing off and doing whatever. They got in late and they had a final exam the next day and they were completely unprepared. And so they went to the teacher, and, and uh, they, well, in the morning, they're like, oh, man, what are we going to do? So they got together, and they made up a story. They went and smeared mud and grease on their clothes, and they told them that they had gone uh, out for supper the night before, and then they had a flat tire, and they had to push the car all the way home to campus. Uh, so they had no time to study. You know, they, they, they thought that, kind of like um, you know, the Gibeonites in Joshua, they thought that th- this would uh, validate their story. So they said, well, you got to appeal to the dean. So they went to the dean, and he listened to their story, and he's like, all right, come back in three days, and I'll let you take your exam. So they all studied diligently, no wasted time, no extra breaks. They studied diligently. And then when they got there, he said, all right, I don't have somebody to proctor this exam, so I need you to leave all your books, your electronics, everything here with me, nothing but a writing instrument. I'm going to put each of you in a separate room, you're going to take your test. They're like, okay, no problem. We've studied. We're prepared. They open the test. There's two questions. Number one, what is your name? should get that one right. Question number two, which tire was it that was flat? <laughs> we're not always as old and gullible as you think we are. So we're going to talk about a different kind of test today. In fact, Today, we're going to talk about the test after the test. 1 Samuel 25 with me, would you? 1 Samuel chapter 25, the test after the test. What was the big test in 1 Samuel chapter 24? If I give you just a little bit of a head start, most of you would be very familiar with that. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, David is on the run from Saul and Saul is chasing him with a, a group of about 3,000 men, and he's chasing him all over the wilderness. In 1 Samuel 24, David and Saul, in God's providence, end up in the same cave. And David's men said, hey, this is your chance. This is the opportunity that God spoke to you about, saying, you can get rid of your enemy. You know, one major problem with that, God never said that. <laughs> Uh, He had an opportunity, but really that was a test of David's character. You know, not every open door is automatically something I should go through without comparing it to God's word and God's leading in other ways. Okay, there David had an opportunity to kill Saul, to maybe make all of his problems go away. That was not how God intended for that to go. David refused the urging of his men. And you know that they were loyal to David, but they were tired of being on the run too, right? They're hiding out in caves and moving from place to place and their families aren't safe. And they'd like for this whole ordeal to be over. I think God allowed that to show to David's men and to show to Saul David's character. God already knew what he was going to do. 
But don't you think that was an intense, emotionally draining time for David? I mean, here he is in the same cave and you know, he does sneak up there, take a really sharp knife and cut off just a little bit of the bottom of Saul's robe to prove I was close enough to you, I could have harmed you if I wanted to. And you know, he goes out of the cave and he calls after Saul and he says, look, I, I'm not interested in hurting you, I'm not after you. Don't you think when that was all over, David was just drained emotionally? You ever been there? Intense spiritual battle, just intense week, maybe a, a trying situation. And there is a tendency to go, well, I'm glad that's over. But if we're not careful after situations like that, we also let our guard down too much. Okay? And what you see in 1 Samuel chapter 25 is what I call the test after the test. That is, David, we see in chapter 24, his initial response was spot on. That's not my place. God will have to take care of Saul. And he resisted the urge to handle matters himself. And that was spot on. David's the same person, but David was in, if I could say it this way, a little weaker state of mind in chapter 25. David almost flunked the test in chapter 25. All right? I want you to see, we're going to um, piece our way through the chapter and um, get several sections of it as we go along. But you see the setting in verse 1, Samuel died. Why is that significant? Because up until this point, who has been the anchor point for David? It was Samuel. When Saul had initially invited him to be his son-in-law, and then Saul sent soldiers to their house to kill him, and Michael helped him get away, where did David go when he ran away? He went to Samuel. And he stayed with Samuel. You know, even in 1 Samuel 22, when Um, Saul was mad at the priests for helping David. David was hanging out still with Samuel, and Saul knew better than to mess with Samuel. So humanly speaking, Samuel was David's anchor point. That was the person he relied on. And now, not only is this post-major test, now from a human standpoint, he has no familiar advisors to lean on. Samuel is not available to him anymore, all right? Then beginning in verse number two, we pick up the main story in this chapter. There was a man in Maon whose possessions were in Carmel, and the man was very great, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel, and the name of the man was Nabal, the name of his wife, Abigail. She was a woman of good understanding and of a beautiful countenance, but the man was churlish and evil in his doings, And he was of the house of Caleb. Now we'll uh, drop down there a a little bit further in just a moment. But I want you to see with me, number one, a painful insult. A painful insult. The setting here is uh, a man by the name of Nabal and his wife Abigail. There are two different places in the Old Testament that are named Carmel. Okay, we're most probably most familiar with Mount Carmel or Mount Carmel, right? That's in the northern part of Israel. And you know, some well-known things happened there, like the confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal and that kind of thing. But if you look in Joshua chapter 15, and a couple of other places in Deuteronomy, but in Joshua chapter 15, long about verse 55, 56, 57, there's a, a, a mention of another place named Carmel in the vicinity of Hebron. Okay, now, 
Um, I won't ask you to raise your hand because I don't want uh, Dr. Ashley to be too disappointed. How many of you remember from Bible geography where Hebron is? Okay, It's in the southern part uh, of the land of Israel. And in that general region, within just a few miles, there was another place named Carmel. Maon, as best we can tell, it was also in that region. And it was more of a uh, mountainous or hilltop setting. Now, if you notice... At the end of verse 3, it tells us he was of the house of Caleb. That would also fit with the geography here. Because if you remember, I'm sure all of you remember from historical books, that uh, Caleb went to Joshua and said, Give me this mountain and the Lord will help me drive out the ones that are there. And so Joshua gave him Hebron and that surrounding area. So this man living several hundred years later of the family of Caleb was still living in that general area in the vicinity of Hebron in the south of Israel. Okay, so you have uh, Carmel was probably, you know, the Bible uh, encyclopedias and commentators very slightly, but we're probably talking about something that was around 10 miles away, maybe less, maybe a little bit more, but the, the estimates range from three or four miles to as many as 15 miles, but probably in that you know, five to 10 mile range from Maon to Carmel. So in other words, his house was here, but the grazing land for his flocks was a little ways away. That was not all that uncommon, especially in certain regions of Israel. If you remember, Joseph's brothers captured him and sold him into slavery when they were out away from home. They had moved the flocks to find grazing land. And that was kind of the way it went for life there. But anyway, that is one of the main characters here, Nabal. How is he described uh, in verse number 3? Churlish and evil in his doings. Okay, I know not all of you have vocabulary as a favorite subject or topic. But if someone calls you churlish, it's not a compliment, okay? Just understand that, okay? Um, churlish, the root word here, um, churlish, means rude, harsh, vulgar. This same word is used in um, Genesis 42 when it says, Joseph spake roughly to his brothers, harsh, he, he was very rough with them before he revealed his true identity as their brother. The same root word is used in Exodus chapter 1 where it says Israel suffered hard bondage in Exodus. Uh, the, same, the same basic idea is used later by David when he's talking about Joab and his brothers when he said that these sons of Zeruiah are too hard for me. This is somebody that was rough, harsh, coarse, cared very little about other people, you know, had no sense of politeness or kindness or tact, okay? That's the kind of man that Nabal was. He was churlish. Later on, he's described as a son of Belial, okay? He was not a godly man. He was not a pleasant man. This is not the kind of person that you want to be around, whether he started out this way or whether he became this way as he increased in life. You know, some, there, there's not an across-the-board description, but sometimes folks get to a certain point in life where they think they're important enough that everybody needs to bow to them and they don't need to interact with other people. He was a well-to-do man, right? 3,000 um, sheep, I believe, is what the number was here. He's got um, 
a very large uh, wealth base there, and it seems like he was wealthy enough that he's like, I don't care about you. I don't have to deal with the little guy. That was Nabal. Okay? So, now, David and his uh, sends messengers. Verse 5, David sent out ten young men and said unto the young men, Get to Carmel, go to Nabal, greet him in my name, and thus shall ye say to him that liveth in prosperity, Peace be to thee, peace be to thine house, peace be to all that thou hast. Three times the term peace. Now, this is a very kind greeting. This was a very polite greeting. Sending a delegation of ten men was a way of showing respect to Nabal as a wealthy landowner and a rancher and such. And he said, um, I hear that thou hast shearers. Well, for you and me, that's like, okay, what's the big deal? But in this culture and in Bible days, as I understand it, a sheep shearing time was a time of feasting, a time of festival. It was a time of rejoicing. You think about it for us, it would be kind of like Thanksgiving time or you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas holidays. It was a time of rejoicing as such. It was a time of feast meals and of sharing. I mean, typically, if you have a friend or an acquaintance, if you, if you knew that they had nowhere to go and you know, they didn't really have a, a place to have a nice celebratory meal for Thanksgiving, you'd invite them to come with you or try to help them line something up, right? That was kind of the general tenor of sheep shearing time. So David's request was appropriate. That's what I'm saying. He was not asking for something that was out of line, but there was also kind of an unspoken arrangement here in verse 8. He says, ask the young men and they will show thee. Okay. Verse 7, thy shepherds which were with us, we hurt them not, neither was there aught missing unto them the whole time they were in Carmel. It was kind of a, a barter system, if you will. There were times when folks like David would provide protection for those that had to move their flocks around from place to place. What were the enemies? Well, there were those that were, in essence, land pirates that would try to come and steal. There were certain tribes that were known for that. But there were also predators, right? When we uh, meet David and his introduction to Saul before Saul allows him to fight Goliath, his resume at that point was fighting off predators from the flock, right? And so there were also natural predators. David, being a shepherd, was sensitive to those things. And so he and his men both kept away human predators, and I think they kept helped to keep away the animal predators as well. There was kind of an expectation. We're providing you a service, and when you have an opportunity, you can you know, help us. We have the manpower, you have the food, and we'll trade. Okay, we'll work for food was kind of the arrangement. All right? So, but they actually did the work. Okay, now, now, he said, ask the young men, they'll tell you. And the young men, later on in their testimony, said they were like a wall to us. They were a defense and a protection for us. As long as David and his men were around us, nothing was missing, no harm came to us. They were great. We'd love to work with them again. And so David makes a request, hey, we helped you. I, can you help me? This was not at all an unreasonable request. It was kind of expected in the culture. Now, for the insult part, look with me in verse number 10. Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? Well, if he knew he was the son of Jesse, he already knew the answer to the first question, right? So this is a rhetorical question, but it's also an insult. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There be many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. Shall I take my bread, my water, 
my flesh that I've killed for my shearers and give it unto men whom I know not whence they be? There's the insult. Insult was twofold. Number one, he accused David of being a rebellious servant. Was David a rebellious servant? There was hardly anybody other than Jonathan who was more loyal to Saul than David, right? And so that was an insult. His character was insulted. But also, you know, his work was insulted. We were out in the cold. We were out in the heat. We were out in all the elements to protect your flock and you're ungrateful. And that last phrase, whom I know not whence they be, how do I even know you belong to David? How do I know you're not just trying to rip me off? Nabal, the description was appropriate, right? He was churlish and evil. He's not a pleasant guy, not a kind guy, not a thoughtful guy. Did you notice how many times the word my was mentioned there? Self-absorbed, self-interest, self-focused. If your focus is self, that turns you into churlish pretty quickly. Okay, But Nabal was a hard man. So you see here a painful insult. David was just trying to do his best to get along. He was running so he didn't have to fight Saul. He would have loved to have been at his dad's house. He would have loved to have been, you know, wherever. He's running because of Saul's actions and choices, not because of David's choices. This was painful on many levels. Number two, I want you to see with me in uh, verses uh, 13 and then in 21 and 22, I want you to see with me a purposed revenge. Verse 13, when the young men reported the response, verse 13, David said unto his men, Gird ye every man his sword. And they girded on every man his sword. And David girded on his sword. And there went up after David 400 men and 200 abode by the stuff. Now you get a parenthetical in here, what's happening on Abigail's end. Drop down to verse 21. Now David had said, this is the rest of the story. David had said, Surely in vain have I kept all that this fellow hath in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that pertaineth unto him. And he hath requited me evil for good. Was that true? Yes, that was true. Verse 22. So and more also do God unto the enemies of David, if I leave of all that pertain unto him by the morning light, any that pisseth against the wall. You have a purposed revenge on the part of David. He said, I was good to that man, and he was evil to me. Guess what? If you live long enough, that's going to happen. If you deal with people, it's going to happen. It happens in ministry sometimes. Sometimes it's intentional, and sometimes it's not. You know, sometimes hurting people lash out. They weren't necessarily, they didn't show up intending to lash out and hurt you. It just happens. One of my friends said it this way, sheep have teeth. You're going to be a shepherd? You're probably going to get bitten, right? Here, David got hurt through no fault of his own. But the response was flawed by David. He said, all right, you're going to, deal me, you're going to do me that way? This is how I'm going to deal with you. In our flesh, is that not a natural response? Oh, so that's how you want to play it? Okay. You know, there, I know there's a, a variety of personalities in this room. Some of you would say that directly and up front. Others of you wouldn't, but that doesn't stop you from thinking it. Oh, okay. So this is how we're going to play this. All right. 
You want those rules? You got them. David decided to take matters into his own hands. Was this wise? No. Remember, just in chapter 24 in the cave, the men were pushing David to take matters into his own hands, and he refused. Now, they didn't even have to push him. David's leading the charge, all right? Gear up, fellas. We're going to go take care of our Nabal problem. They're like, yes, some action. We've been sitting around here twiddling our thumbs forever. we got something to do. Let's go. They didn't have to be talked into this. They were ready to follow David. But here you have a purpose revenge. What is David trying to do here? Taking matters into his own hands. When you do that, you always cause problems. Okay? When you try to take matters into your own hands and seek revenge outside of God's timing and God's word, it's going to cause problems. So you see a painful insult. You see a purposed revenge. Number three, I want you to see with me a prudent intervention. Begins in verse number 14. One of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to salute our master, and he railed on them. That word railed is an interesting word. I mean, if you take it literally, you could think he picked up some sort of metal bar and and beat them. You know, that's not what that means. Okay, To rail on them. That word has kind of the idea of a shriek. It's almost like the, the shriek of a bird of prey as it's you know, coming on its prey. I will not demonstrate this morning. Okay, you're welcome. Maybe we'll do that the next time we need animals for Old MacDonald had a farm. Okay? But he, he, was, he was harsh. He just attacked them. He flew on them. That same idea is used elsewhere in 1 Samuel. When they, the children of Israel flew upon the prey, it says, like an attacking um, ravenous animal or a bird of prey. It says, he railed on them, but the men were very good to us. Verse 16, they were a wall unto us by night and day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Verse 17, now therefore know and consider what thou wilt do. For evil is determined against our master and against all his household. They knew. They knew what was coming. They understood the typical arrangement between the shepherds and the um, protectors. They knew the expected, you know, uh, payoff or a, uh, you know, gift of thanks. They knew the expected interchange there. And when it didn't happen, they said, David's not just going to take this. We know what's coming. Now notice the last phrase of verse 17. He is such a son of Belial that a man cannot speak to him. That phrase, son of Belial, is only used a very few times in the Old Testament. It's used in 1 Samuel chapter 2, 3, and 4 talking about the sons of Eli. It's used here talking about Nabal. Literally, it means worthless. Uh, they are, he is such a worthless human being, you cannot reason with him. Now, who are these young men talking to? The boss's wife. Do you think that they're just going to casually go to the boss's wife and say, hey, the boss is so unreasonable, nobody can deal with him. He's a worthless human being. you got to help me. In normal circumstances, the boss's wife is going to deal harshly with that servant, right? But right now, the servants realize this is a matter of life and death. If something doesn't change here... Nabal's going to get killed and we're going to die in the process too, which is why they took the risk of speaking this way to Nabal's wife. They also understood Abigail's character. So look, you need to do something 
We would talk to the boss, but you know him. You can't talk to him. Verse 18. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two bottles of wine and five sheep ready dressed and five measures of parched corn and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on asses, multiple animals here. So that sounds like a lot. Yeah, it is. What's your life worth? Okay, but also understand, how many people is she, is she needing to feed? How many men does David have? 600. 400 are coming with him. 200 stand behind. And in comparison to the storehouse and the wealth and the feast that Nabal had, this is nothing. Okay? This is three or four servings, comparatively speaking, out of the abundance that they had. This is the gift that should have been given to start with. If it had been given, the rest of the story is avoided. So she put the loaded up multiple animals with a whole bunch of food in the form of uh, gifts in the form of food and sent them on ahead. Verse 19, she said unto her servants, go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she told not her husband Nabal. And so it was, as she rode on the ass, she came down by the covert of the hill. Behold, David and his men came down against her and she met them. So they, she sent the present on ahead. What's she doing? Trying to soften him up a little bit. Remember uh, Jacob did the same thing when it was time for him to meet up with Esau? He sent a whole bunch of presents ahead to kind of soften the blow before he met Esau face to face. Okay, well that's kind of what's happening here. It says they met in the covert of the hill. It seems like there's a, a valley or a low place and at, you know, they're kind of coming this way but Abigail comes down in the valley from this side. David and his men come down from this side and they meet. So it's kind of out of the, the top of the hill view so to speak. But they met in a, uh, a known place there. It says the covert of the hill. Um, verse 21, David had said, Surely in vain have I kept all this fellow hath in the wilderness. We've read that. Verse 23, When Abigail saw David, she hasted, lighted off the ass, fell before David on her face, and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Upon me, my Lord, upon me let this iniquity be. And let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak in thine audience and hear the words of thine handmaid. Let not my Lord, I pray thee, regard this man of Belial, even Nabal. You see here a prudent intervention. You see the approach that Abigail took. Number one, she gave the gift that should have been given. Okay, number two, she fed some hungry men to try to take the edge off before she had to talk to them. That's not always a bad thing either. Number three, she took the opposite approach of Nabal. What does the Bible say Nabal did? According to the testimony of the servants, it said he railed on them. He was harsh. He was screeching. He was angry. He was as inconsiderate as you could possibly be. What approach did she take? Humble. Okay. She made an appeal. She had... You know, a, a spiritual element to this that we'll see as we go along. She appealed to the promises of God. It has been wisely said that if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Okay? But is a hammer the appropriate tool for every situation? I mean, what if an oven only had two settings, on and off? Okay, it has temperature adjustments for a reason, right? If you're baking off pizza, 450, right? Cookies, 350, right? There are different recipes call for different temperatures for a reason. Fellas, do you just have one screwdriver in your toolbox if you have one? 
Well, at this stage of your life, maybe, but eventually you want to have more. Do you want to just have one socket or do you have the whole range? S-A-E-N metric, right? Because the same tool doesn't fit every situation. And here, the same approach doesn't work in every situation either. Abigail humbled herself. And she acknowledged that wrong had been done. She, she didn't even talk about Nabal. She just said, look, it's my fault. I, here, I'm making this up to you. She took the blame on herself. Now, verse 25. Let not my Lord, I pray thee, regard this man of Belial, even Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. Play on words here. The Hebrew word for folly is Nabalah. Nabal is his name, and Nabalah is his game. Okay? In other words, what she's saying is his name, Nabal means fool, Nabalah means folly. His name means fool, and he's living up to his name. That's exactly what she's saying. Who's she speaking about? Her husband. This was the best thing she could say about him at this point. Yes, I understand he's a man of Belial. But David, you don't need to act like him in retaliation. That's what she's saying. Fellas, if the nicest thing your wife can say about you is, bless his heart, I know he's an idiot, but don't respond in in kind, you got big problems. Okay? You got character problems, you got leadership problems, you got spiritual problems, and Nabal had all of those. Okay? But here, she said, look, I know he's a foolish man. I know he's a son of Belial. I know he's churlish. Notice what she said into verse 25. But I, thine handmaid, saw not the young men. I know how he's going to respond. If I had seen them, I would have taken care of you. Verse 26. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, seeing the Lord hath withholden thee from coming to shed blood and from avenging thyself with thine own hand. Now let thine enemies and they that seek evil to my Lord be as Nabal. You see the spiritual component here? What she's saying? Let God handle it. That's the element. She showed humility. She showed uh, insight. You know, and how she approached this. But she also appealed to David's conscience. Okay, verse number 28. I pray thee, forgive the trespass that I hand me, for the Lord will surely make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord fighteth the battles of the Lord, and evil hath not been found in thee all thy days. Yet a man is risen to pursue thee and to seek thy soul, but the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God. And the souls of thine enemies, them shall he sling out as out of the middle of a sling. And it shall come to pass when the Lord shall have done to my Lord according to all the good that he hath spoken concerning thee and shall have appointed thee ruler over Israel, that this shall be no grief unto thee, nor offense of heart unto my Lord. Either that thou hast shed blood causeless or that my Lord hath avenged himself. But when the Lord shall have dealt well with my Lord, then remember thy handmaid. What did she say here? Let God event. You don't want to have innocent blood on your conscience. Was Goliath innocent blood? No. He was an enemy of Israel. It was in a battle. He blasphemed God. He got the death penalty. Okay? That was not innocent blood. But if David took matters into his own hands here and decided he was going to avenge himself, you're not going to insult me like that and get away with it. It was going to be a stain on his conscience. You see a prudent intervention. Number four, I want you to see with me a proper response. Verse number 32. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, 
which has sent thee this day to meet me. And blessed be thy advice, and blessed be thou which hath kept me this day from coming to shed blood and from avenging myself with my own hand. For in very deed, as the Lord God of Israel liveth, which hath kept me back from hurting thee, except thou hast hasted and come to meet me, surely there had not been left unto Nabal by the morning light any that pisseth against the wall. You see here, when she appealed to his conscience, she also reminded him of God's promises, right? She knew who David was. She knew the situation with Saul. She knew that God had promised to be the next king. That the region that they lived in near Hebron belonged to what tribe? Judah. What was the tribe of David? Judah. I mean, th- that was not an unfamiliar story, which is what made Nabal's response that much more insulting and infuriating. He knew who David was. He knew he wasn't a re- rebellious servant against Saul. But here you see a proper response. David says, God sent you to keep me back. That word to, to keep back means you know, to restrain or to hold back. It's very often used of God. In fact, um, you know, he, this is used in the Psalms. In, Psalm, in different places, David said, the Lord you know, held me back or kept me from avenging myself, that kind of thing. This incident is later uh, reviewed in the Psalms as well. But here, he, David recognized Abigail as an instrument of God. You know what David could have said? Get out of my way, woman. I got business with the men. He could have said that, and he would have made himself a huge mess, right? He humbled himself enough to listen to the advice of a godly woman. You know, most of you have a godly woman in your life that you call mom or grandma. You should probably listen. You know, you're praying that God, men, that God gives you a godly wife. You should probably listen. There will be times when (laughs) the advice of God Looks, comes in a face that looks a whole lot like mom or your wife. You listen, you compare that to the Word of God. Here, Abigail was the instrument of God to keep David from making a huge mistake. He could have said, I don't have time to you, I'm not listening to you. What did he say? He said, you know what? You're right. Remember, this is the test after the test. He passed the test in chapter 24 in the cave with flying colors. He is well on his way to flunking this one and making a royal mess in the process. Here, God throws up a big stop sign and a red flashing light in the form of um, (laughs) Abigail's plea. God does the same thing for you and me. Jesus said to the Holy Spirit, when He has come, He will reprove the world of what? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. When you have made up your mind, all right, that's it. I'm going to handle this situation. And then there's that pricking here. There's that uneasiness. There's that sense of guilt, whatever you want to call it. The Spirit of God's working on your conscience. That is the red flashing light. That is the stop sign. The question is, how do you respond? Do you run the stop sign or do you heed the stop sign? Here, David heeded the stop sign. God's like, David, stop. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for God's stop signs. Because there have been plenty of times I've made up my mind I'm going to go do this. I'm going to take matters into my own hands, and it would not have gone well. There's plenty of times when, you know, some situation has dangled in front of my face, 
and my natural response is wrong, and I start that direction, God's like, oh, you don't want to go that way. Abigail could not have physically stopped David. David still had a choice to make here. But you see here a proper response. How do you respond to rebuke? How do you respond to conviction? And if I could say it this way, how do you respond when it comes from a source that you'd rather not have to deal with, like maybe a younger brother or sister? You know, maybe a roommate. Maybe, you know, some other source. Sometimes it's, it's directly the Spirit of God, and you're just like, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do. Yeah, don't look at me like that. You know you've been tempted to respond that way. God here throws up a great big stop sign in front of David, and we have a proper response. He said, you know what? You're right. God sent you. God is trying to hold me back. And in essence, he said, all right, I'm going to, no more. I'm going to let God handle this. And he turned around and walked away. Verse 35, David received of her hand that which she had brought and said unto her, Go in peace to thine house. See, I've hearkened unto thy voice and I've accepted thy person. Verse 36, Abigail came to Nabal and behold, he held a feast in his house like the feast of a king. Could he have afforded to share some food with David and his men? Absolutely. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunken. Wherefore, she told him nothing less or more until the morning light. But it came to pass in the morning when the wine was gone out of Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. Number five, I want you to see with me, providential vengeance. She waited till he sobered up the next day to talk to him, and then she said, look, you know how you dealt with David's men? David was coming to kill you. This is what I did. I went and I took a gift and I gave it to him and I asked him to spare your life. His response was not one of gratitude. He had a churlish, harsh response. He was infuriated. Okay? It says here, his heart died within him. Now, the Bible says in uh, verse 38 that it was 10 days later that he died. So what happened here? The old term is apoplexy. You know, he had a stroke. Or a heart attack is how we would say it today. It seems like his anger, his rage, his realization of the situation, whatever the circumstance was, caused such a violent reaction. He had a stroke or a heart attack. And what we would say today probably is he went, uh, went into a coma. It says he became as a stone. He was unresponsive. And then 10 days later, he died. Was God able to take care of David's situation? Yes. Is God able to take care of you and me when situations come into our life and we're wronged or we don't like it or we're treated unfairly? Yeah. Are we willing to wait and let God handle it? The temptation is, all right, I'm going to handle this myself. If we do, it's going to be, as Abigail said to David, a grief of heart. It's going to always be on your conscience. Here, God dealt with Nabal. How did Nabal uh, reap what he had sown? Did he get to enjoy for a longer time his wealth and his riches and his feasting and all that? Nope. God, it reminds me of the parable in the New Testament. Thou fool, this, soul shall I, uh, this night shall thy soul be required of thee. God could deal with Nabal. The test after the test. It was a similar situation 
In chapter 24, David was being mistreated by Saul. Chapter 25, David's being mistreated by Nabal. Previously, David said, nope, that's God's anointed. I'm not going to take matters in my own hand. I'm going to let God handle it. Here, he was tempted to take matters into his own hand. He was stopped by a godly lady uh, who's described as prudent and also as a beautiful countenance back in verse 2 or 3 when she's introduced. Eventually, he took Abigail as his wife you know, later on down the road after this incident. He was so impressed with her. But what are the lessons that we should learn from Nabal? Never you know, take matters into your own hands. You must let God handle the situation. Number two, when God throws up a stop sign, you better listen. Okay? Sometimes that's in the form of stopping us from sin. Sometimes it's in the form of a decision we're about to make. Sometimes I've made up my mind, this is the way I'm going to go, and God's like, uh-uh, it's not the right direction. Sometimes that's a him or a her. Sometimes that's a place. Sometimes that's a work opportunity. That can take a lot of options, but when God says no, don't run the stop sign. If we're going to learn a lesson from David here, it's listen to godly advice, whatever you think of the source. Okay? Ultimately, I must trust God more to handle the situation more than I trust myself. That's a hard lesson to learn in life, isn't it? To trust God more than I trust myself. Because I think, boy, I'm, I'm just going to handle this situation. If I ask the question this way, who can handle it better, you or God? You know the answer. But we don't always want to hear it. I want to take matters into my own hand. David nearly failed the test after the test. Do not let your guard down. Thank God for the victories. And thank God for his help. But as long as God's left you here and breathing, there'll be another test coming. It doesn't always look exactly the same. One of them looked like Saul in a cave. Another one looked like a churlish old rancher that didn't want to pay for the services rendered. The tests don't always look the same, but the root issue is the same. Submission to God's authority, letting God handle the situation, and only moving on God's will and God's instructions, not taking matters into my own hands. Guess what? In chapter 26, we get the third test. That's David when he finds Saul out in the field and he goes and steals the water bottle and the spear. This same kind of test was continually there. Thank God for the victories, but I beg of you, don't let your guard down. Don't think, all right, I passed the test. You know, I, I'm done. It'll never happen again. Ask God's help. Isn't that why in the model prayer, God said, uh, Jesus said that we should ask the Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's why. Okay, We've got to constantly be on guard. Thank God for the victories. Thank God for the lessons that we learn. But don't let your guard down. Don't take matters into your own hand like David started to do. But when the circumstances arise, do what David did. Humble yourself. Listen to the conviction of God. Listen to the godly advice. And let God take care of the situation. He can handle it better than I can. Better than you can.